Welcome in. Thank you so much for joining us on the CCA California podcast. My name is Chris alongside my good friend, Kevin Nakata. Kevin, what's shaking, man? How are you? Wow. We're here again. It's episode 13. <laughs> yes. It's amazing that we're still here. We're doing episode 13. <laughs> we're on our way to that centennial. Yeah. We're getting yeah. close. We talked about that. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how this is possible, but Again, we have a very exciting guest. It seems to get better every single week, it seems like. Really, with a lot of knowledge. So yeah. we're excited to bring you all the great knowledge uh, provided by experienced people on the water. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to learn a lot about bluefin again. Again. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, guys, before we get started, make sure you follow us on Instagram at CCA California. Also, don't forget, share the podcast with someone that you know, spread it around like wildfire. We'd love to grow this audience, grow this community, and get everyone involved with CCA California. Well, with that being said, we've got Mr. Dennis Grote, also known as Creaky Tiki. Dennis, how are you, my friend? I'm excellent, Chris. Thank you for having me here today. Real pleasure. Absolutely. Kevin, I've been looking forward to this episode for a while now. I know we scheduled it like a month ago, but I've never been on a long-range trip before. Have you? No, I've never been on a long-range trip either. I'm super eager to learn. We get to pick the brain of someone that's probably got more experience than the both of us put together in our age. Just remember, we're young. We're old. I mean, old. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep. Well, Dennis, before we get started here, tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Well, young age, uh, we moved out to the West Coast, and my dad and a gentleman lived across the street from me that didn't have any kids of his own, took us fishing a lot. Now, my dad, whenever he could get away from work, gentleman across the street took off work to take us, and uh, he, in fact, was one of the original long-range fishermen back on uh, the, I think it was, what, the Polaris and the Polaris Star way back in the day. Hmm. Um, but he was very, very avid fisherman, and between the two of them, I kind of caught the bug. So <laughs> originally, it was both fresh and saltwater fishing, but as time went on, I just concentrated more in the saltwater. I don't know, for whatever reason, it just became more attractive, more enjoyable to me. So I've been fortunate enough to spend a lot of my life fishing saltwater off our Southern California coast and beyond. Hmm. Yeah, and, and, and freshwater uh, bass fishing, are we talking striped bass? What kind of freshwater? Back in the day, it was mostly trout fishing. Okay. Uh, I did some bass fishing when that became pretty popular. You know, I had the, had the whole assortment of all of the plugs and, and, and uh, all of the little uh, poured lures and everything, but mostly trout fishing, some bass fishing, and, and now pretty much just ocean fishing. That's great. Did you ever get hooked to one of those uh, bass-eating trout or trout-eating bass? <laughs> I never caught a bass eating the trout. Uh, did did have some luck on the bass up at... Uh, some of the local lakes, you know, nothing super big. A uh, good friend of mine actually was fish, fish, fishing with uh, Denver Easley when he caught back at that time the state record right. up north. So, uh, yeah, that's why I was curious because, you know, during that time, there was probably a lot less pressure from uh, people going after these big bass that were eating trout that were stocked in lakes. I'm sure people were maybe aware of it, you know, and maybe not. But now yeah. that's all people throw in these lakes in California is big baits. Yeah. 14-inch, 12-inch, that's kind of like the standard nowadays, <laughs> long, you know? Yeah. So yeah. probably stuff that you would use on a long-range trip, actually. Well, we, talk, yeah, we talked about that in the uh, Doc Talk episode, and I was telling them that one of the things you end up doing on the long-range trips, if we can get into that now, yeah, is let's do it. you sometimes end up fishing a big bait, and we're talking anywhere from a 4- to 7-, 8-pound tuna or skipjack, 
<clears throat> with a 12, four, or four, 12 or 14 0 hook in it on a 50 wide with 150 or 200 pound line and that's your bait fishing outfit <laughs> and to have one of those those small tunas inhaled by a big tuna is an experience you can't describe i mean it's it's it's, it's mind-boggling that they can swallow that thing and take off a lot of people that are listening to this podcast you know they probably never heard of anything like that before but just like you said using a skipjack what gauge the size maybe like five pounds is like a oh, five to eight pounds yeah right yeah. <laughs> using that for bait that's for tuna bait. yeah you'll see a picture in a book of a 50 wide dump more than halfway down and that was just the bait swimming that's yeah. awesome yeah so then when you get bit uh there's a whole situation there i'm sure that um you can better explain but uh in your book let's go over your book really quick You've written a book all about long-range fishing. For anyone that is not experienced, like myself or Chris, anyone out there, they can read your book. It's called The Inside Guide to Long-Range Fishing, of long-range, or to long-range fishing, uh, written by you, Creaky Tiki. And, um, you know, what is in this book? Can you give us an overview? I read it myself. It's got a long list of beginner all the way to advanced techniques, but can you give us a better understanding of what's in there? Give it my best, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, back when I first started going on long-range trips, like every novice angler, there's some things I'd figured out pretty well ahead of time and some things I just never experienced and, and really wasn't quite ready for. There was several books that were out on the market and several have come out since, and it seemed to me that each of those touched on certain aspects, but none of them was really for the beginning and novice angler, the real complete information packet on here's some things you you probably need to know before you go here's some things that could help you before you go <clears throat> so i started doing a series of articles and i had some friends reviewing them and and one of them said you know dennis you're a couple articles short of a book there's no book out there that has everything from beginning to end for the these these novice fishermen that would be really helpful for them you ought to write a book well i looked it over and thought about it and and I, what I tried to do was think, what are the things that I wish I'd have known right up front when I first started long-range fishing and put all of that into a book, like I said, from beginning to end, not just the fishing, but everything related to the trip, prepping, getting there, getting on the trip, processing the fish afterwards, parking, etc. Right, you know, right. You know, and, and make it a good, good informational guide for the people getting into it. So they'll have a much more enjoyable and comfortable trip, hopefully, having that knowledge up front instead of having to go on three or four trips to gain it the old-fashioned way just by going. Right. And you illustrate everything in here wonderfully. You've taken your own pictures over the years from your own experience. Um, how long have you been doing long-range fishing? Oh, gosh, since the, since the 80s, the true long-range trips. And the, by long-range, we're talking anything over five days? My in my way of thinking, long range is anything seven days or over. Okay, seven yeah. to ten days, you're going to hit the lower banks down off of Baja, and and eleven days and up, you have the opportunity to maybe go to the buffer zone or the hurricane bank plus the lower banks. Wow, yeah, and there's a lot of big tuna down there, are there not? There are, and one of the things that that we discussed on the other program was was coming up to about. Five years ago, when this bluefin first started showing up, there were more and more restrictions on the fishing. Uh, even the, the medium-range boats were getting more restricted. For instance, the Cedros and Benitos operation changed to the Ponga operation, which are great operations, but really limited the options for the, the mid-range and long-range party boats. Mexico started creating their biospheres. 
where they were limiting the access. We used to be able to fish all over Viejo Islands, and they shut it down to just Clarion, then Clarion with a buffer zone, then Clarion with the extended buffer zone. So I started noticing a lot more pressure on the available spots. Now, captains were searching out new spots, new banks to fish, and, and a few were located, thank goodness. Puerto Vallarta showed up and took some pressure off. But even with all of that, there was just a lot of pressure because boats that used to be split up, from my view, between the lower banks and the islands offshore were getting more concentrated as, as the areas became a little bit more restrictive. So the bluefin showed up, <clears throat> and all of a sudden, you could get long-range size fish and long-range type fishing on a three-quarter, one-day, day-and-a-half trip if you had a good day. It took a lot of pressure off of the lower banks and the, and the remote islands. So even the long-range boats now, if you look at their schedules, because the bluefin fishing is not only so good, but it's, it's, it's so consistent through so many months, something we never used to see, that they're interspersing shorter trips. They're not doing all long trips. They'll do a long trip and some shorter trips and a long trip and some shorter trips. So the pressure has kind of come off of the lower banks and the, and the remote banks and islands out there. If you look at the fish counts and reports, it's interesting. Uh, last year, Royal Polaris' first trip to the Hurricane Bank of the Year had their best Wahoo Day ever. It looked pretty insane. Yeah. The, and they were big. Big. Real big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, their trip right now, they've had great Wahoo fishing and really good yellowfin tuna fishing again. There was a couple years at the Hurricane Bank when the, the bigger fish were getting really hard to locate, but it's really bounced back. Water conditions are also better, too, because we had some cold water a couple years ago. But the spreading out of the fleet over local to, to Guadalupe, to the, the uh, lower uh, banks, and then out to those islands has really been a benefit to the fishermen and also really to the fish because they're not getting that pressure right. day in, day out. Right, and and w I think we can definitely see that locally um, with with bluefin. Uh, we talked about this on our last episode with Pete Gray about you know limits like the bluefin limit moratorium being reduced from ten down to two per angler, and now you're starting to see sizes just continually skyrocketing. We're not talking about we're talking about a fifty pound average increase every year. It's pretty incredible. Um, so, you know, everyone's talking about what's going to happen this year. What's going to happen this year? Do you, do you think we're going to get to a 400 pounder? A bluefin I, locally. Everything that I can read, uh, I mean, the bluefin phenomena is fairly recent, so there's no for sure. I think we are, <clears throat> pardon me. I've been seeing the same thing you have, Kevin. Real, besides lowering the, the sport fish limit, I think it was the, the great restrictions on a commercial fleet where they Correct. weren't netting up all those juvenile bluefin just across down south, you know, off of Mexico. Right. Has created a fishery. I don't know if people understand. We, in my lifetime, I've been around here quite a few years, never, even back in the good old days, never saw fishing like this over such a wide area for so many months, you know, for such a great fish. So, yeah, it's 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 just an incredible incredible fishery. You dodged the question though, Dennis. Are you going to see a four hundred pound fish this year or what? <laughs> I think the fleet is going to see a couple four hundred pounds. Oh, I think so. there we I, go. Some, somewhere around that. I mean, when they reach maturity, they expect these fish to go back over across the Pacific to spawn. Um, from what I've read, somewhere in the range of three fifty to four fifty they start getting to the point where they might thinking about heading back across they think the scientists think right but 
we've never had fish like this, you know, staying around, staying right. around year round, you know. Yeah, they saw fish on the sonar, but they don't know how big they were back then. And you hit it right on the head, Kevin. It's like every year the biggest fish seems to get 50 pounds bigger. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see it this year. That's so awesome to hear. And you're right about this being kind of an historical event in the industry. Um, a lot of people mimic what you say in that they've never seen anything like this before. Um, will we see it again? That's a question to be had still, right? Um, it has not ended, and maybe it will or maybe it won't this year, but we definitely are lucky enough to still have it even in 2000 and going in 2022 now. Um, do you think that there's going to be a certain technique or a certain um, – uh, well, just just the technique that's going to really get to that 400-pounder more so than others. Do you think it's going to be a dead-flying fish? Do you think it's going to be a vertical jig at night? You know, if those fish are around, uh, last year I, I got a 205 on the flying fish. I mean, it, it was all over that thing, and that was one of the biggest fish we'd seen around that day. Uh, the fish down deep can... can, can uh, get big also i think I, I think it's hard to predict whether or not it will be a flyer or a jig at night um it may even be a jig during the day one thing that hasn't really been looked at real heavily is it oftentimes during the day the the, the sport boats will go where there's more of a quantity of the the smaller medium-sized fish then at night try and find those schools of the big ones i'd be curious to see what would happen if one of those boats tried to do jigging deep daytime over the big fish hmm. not over the small fish so i wouldn't be surprised if this year we see some big jig fish during the day as well as at night and of course the flying fish uh, you know the flyers always a good bet always a good bet hey chris you better ask questions man because i'm just going to keep going <laughs> you better sneak in here you know i was kind of enjoying that well let, let's move into tackle i know Great. tackle has Im- improved and have, and has changed just within the last five or 10 years or so, we're getting more successful at catching these fish, but not only fish, big quality fish too. We are. But one thing I want to point out is uh, we are so programmed from our party boat fishing days and catching school-sized fish to try to use the lightest gear possible to entice a bite. And once fish reach a certain size, once you start hitting that, let's say, 70 pounds and above, you have to have the right gear. So it's not only the quality of the gear, but fishing the right gear, the heavy stuff. And a lot of anglers are very reluctant. I think it's just a natural thing. I know there's times I've had to fight it to think, well, I'll go down light and get bit. Well, yeah, you're going to go down light and get bit and get smoked or get trashed. (laughs) And Dennis, you're talking exactly about one of our, actually our producer Darren situation from two years ago when he's fishing bass gear at the Tanner (laughs) Bank. Uh, on 60, 70 pound bluefin. <laughs> well, then, Darren, you, that could, guy. <laughs> you, could, you could speak to that. Yeah. It, <laughs> it, it can destroy your gear. So, yes, high quality gear is important. I mean, if you have this old stuff from the old days, it, it, it's, it's great to look at. But for what we're doing today and the size of fish, it's just not adequate. I think, I mean, in my lifetime, it's normally when we went out on a party boat. Or uh, you went out on a private boat, you were going to find fish within a certain range. And every once in a while, there's one that was bigger, or a couple that were bigger. But consistently, you had a specific range of fish. One of the just 
incredible things about this bluefin fishery is you're going to go from 200 pound, I mean 20 pound fish up to 300 pound fish, same day, sometimes same area. You, you it's almost like a, it's almost like Forrest Gump's box of chocolates. Mm-hmm. When you drop down <laughs> nowadays, you never know what you're going to get. Right. <laughs> but uh, it's really amazing though how a lot of these captains with the technology that's on their boats. Let's just say it's um, any of the Furuno side scans that are out there. Um, it is amazing how they can depict the size of the fish based on what they're seeing from a side scan unit. They can actually tell the size, right? Just by the amount of sound that they're hearing, the acoustic sound they're hearing come off those finders. Yeah, from the acoustics and then from the view and the screen, they know. And I've just seen so many heartbreaks for people that you know saved their money, took their vacation time, got it together, went on one of these trips, and the captain said... Put down the big gear, nothing less than 60. And they think, wow, I, I'm a good fisherman, or I know what I'm doing. I'll just use a drag and drop down 30 or 40, and then just Get unfortunately lose apart. for them the fish mm-hmm. of a lifetime. Yeah. So, yeah, when I would just encourage people that whatever the crew and the captain are telling you in terms of size of gear, believe it. They're saying it for a reason. Right. Their goal is for you is to have the best trip you can possibly have, not the worst. They're not trying to keep you from getting bit. They're trying to get you bit and get that fish hopefully to the boat, give you the best chance at getting it to the boat. So, yeah, sometimes the, the medium and heavy gear is an absolute must, and it it sometimes it feels like, what am I doing here putting this giant line and, you know, down for this, you know, for this local fishing, but you have to use the right gear. I'm going. I'm going. I got a question. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, not many times do I get excited like this inside one of these podcasts. Okay, Dennis? So, you got to (laughs) understand when I'm blocking Chris, it's for a reason. (laughs) So, so can you, can you get kind of give someone who probably has a lot more experience than most people fishing a sardine on heavy line? Can you give some helpful tips to someone that's going off the corner, fresh, just had a pile of chum thrown around? Can you give someone the perspective on how to fish anything above 100 pound for a big blue fin, the right hooks, the right line, the right length of line, um, all the right gear? Can you give someone some helpful hints on how to fish a sardine specifically or maybe a mini Mac off the corner for a big blue fin? Okay, we'll, we'll start with sardine. Bait selection for bluefin is critical. I've really noticed with yellowfin, sometimes yellowfin will hit a dead bait just as readily as they'll hit a live bait. Sometimes they're just not picky at all. Bluefin are very, very picky when it comes to bait. Even during a decent bite, they can be very picky. You need a lively, natural-looking bait. So the heavier the gear, the more important it is to find a lively sardine. So the first thing I'd say is, is if you're not experienced at selecting a hot bait, if you've been able to get by just grabbing a bait out of the tank, throwing and getting bit, awesome. But if you're going for bluefin, bait selection is critical. There's one trip that, uh, that I was on last year, one of the secret trips I was on last year, and we had a fisherman who was just a tremendous fisherman. He's a rod builder. And he would stand at that bait tank seemingly for seemingly endless amounts of time He'd go to every well and back and forth and finally pick a bait, but he ended up getting bit more than anyone on the boat, even more than me, because he was so selective in finding that that hot swimming bait. A couple of things. If the sun is out, if that bait isn't like light and bright, uh, it's probably not super lively. 
If it's cloudy outside, sometimes they'll turn darker. But you want to have the liveliest sardine you can get. Okay? So, so just to clarify, um, because I know what you're talking about, but not, some people may not. The back of these sardines, typically, when you're looking inside the live or inside the slammer or live well, whatever mm-hmm. you're looking into, you'll see a lot of blue in there. A lot of maybe darkish blue, sometimes a right. lightish green. But what you're describing is something more of like a tan green, something very light in perspective to what you actually see in the live inside of the deep live well, inside of a slammer or something that's way deep. So when they get put into the handrail and you're looking at the baits, you're talking about finding one that's <coughs> almost like a tan color, right? Yeah, just a super light green, almost almost silver green. Right, right. <clears throat> yeah. And and I mean my my thing is the hardest bait to catch is probably the one you want. You know, you don't want to terrorize it catching it, but when that bite is on, the tendency is to grab the first one you can get and throw it in. But it's really worth your while with bluefin to try to take your time and cradle up one of those hotter baits and get that one on and get it out. Hmm. Um, second thing is, is, is when you ask about fishing off the corner, um, you want to get that bait in with as little trauma to it as you can. Everyone has their own preference on how they like to hook it. My most common go-to is the butt hook because it tends to get the bait down a little bit, and those fish are generally coming up from down deep to feed. So for me, the butt hook gets the bait a little bit deeper, especially if there's a lot of current. It doesn't end up on the top getting picked by the seagulls or the, or the, uh, the seabirds. And <clears throat> it seems to more often than not go away from the boat. One thing you're going to find with that heavy line when those fish have a lot of resistance the bait's natural tendency is to look for cover. So we're tossing it out away from the boat. If it sees that boat and a bunch of its buddies hiding out underneath <laughs> right. it between the running gear, <clears throat> they'll loop back. And sometimes um, you'll get that bait a fair amount away from the boat, and it'll make a U-turn underwater and come back. And it's still, you think, pulling line off. It's coming back. So especially with heavy line, it's important to keep in touch with your bait. One of the wonderful things about our braided line is even with heavy line, if you have floral leader to braided line, even 100, 130, you can feel the tail beat of that sardine. And if you can feel the tail beat of that sardine, you know your line is straight and you know it's still swimming and lively. If you don't feel that tail beat, one of two things, that bait's dying or it's made a U-turn, it's actually under the boat. Um, it's really easy for that bait to go head for cover, and mm-hmm. it's really easy to fool the angler sometimes into thinking, no, no, it's still taking line, I'm still good. But if you right. can't feel that tail beat, better put it in gear and recheck because it could be running back and not fishing where you need it to be. Right. What about hook size? Let's, let's say the fish have been specifically pointed out by the captain that they're above 100. Above 100? Above 100. Above 100, a minimum of 3.0. 4.0 would be better. Okay. Okay. Three O or four O and a strong hook. Strong hook. Now, when we're talking about bluefin, besides them being picky on bait, they are toothy critters compared to the tuna we normally catch. Okay. So when people ask me about hooks, sometimes when you're talking smaller ones, you've got to drop down in your hook size to get bit. I mean, sometimes, as much as I hate to admit it and do it, hook size makes a difference. I prefer circle hooks with bluefin almost exclusively because you got much better chance of hooking it in the corner of the jaw 
and not getting chewed off. Tons and tons of good quality bluefin have been lost to chew offs, much more percentage wise, I would say, than the yellowfin because they do have bigger, sharper teeth than the yellowfin. So, circle hook is the best if you have to use a J hook. If, if, if the bite is super picky on the smaller grade fish, you may have to use a J hook. You may have the captain saying use a J hook. Fish it like a circle hook and hope right. you hook it in the corner. But if you fish a J-hook and swing on it, odds are you're going to hook up that fish down deep in the, in the running gear and you're going to get chewed off in, in a very, very short period of time. So, yeah, 100 pounds and up, 3-0, preferably 4-0, strong hook. I like ring circle hooks personally. Um, I've had very, very good luck with them, so that would be the way I'd go there. Okay. Dennis, how much merit is there to the – because people think – or they say, you know, bluefin, they have really big eyes. They can see really well. How much merit is, is there to that? I think all of the tunas have big eyes because they feed at night. So, mm-hmm. yes, they can see, but the question is, is how much can they see in the low light and the depth that they're running at at night, you know? So, mm-hmm. sure, they have to be able to see to swim at night and to feed, you know? Um, I don't know how it compares to other fish. I do know that those eyes like jigs dropped in front of them at night, and even occasionally a, a drop or a, 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 a sinker rig with a live bait, um, sinker rig with dead bait, sinker rig with a chandelier of dead baits. They'll they'll mm-hmm. hit all of those. So they're picking it up somehow, whether it's eyes or their side sensors, their their sensory uh, receptors on along their lines on the side and eyes. I don't know, but they find it and they bite it. You know, it seems to be that. It's almost like every year there's a new recipe for getting bluefin. Last year was the knife jig. The year before that was the, you know, the years ago was the yummy flyer and all that. Flat fall. <clears throat> Flat fall, exactly. Yeah, yeah. What, what do you think is going to happen this year? What, uh, what's going to be the hot ticket? I think the hot ticket this year is to book a trip. And go. <laughs> nice. Um, but already good sign, but seriously, already good sign. They've been All the boats have been seeing bluefin, typical for this time of year in the cooler water. Their nose is kind of in the mud. Uh, last week, there was a couple of fish that did bite, uh, both of them over 100, which, <laughs> gee, that's not a bad way to start the season. The first two caught were over 100. <laughs> um, but they're seeing, again, the, the quantity of fish. The fish are there, so I think it's going to be a repeat. Um, I don't know if there's anything new and exciting that hasn't uh, been tried yet, but uh, whether it's the, the, the flat fall jig, the SK jig, the, uh, the, the what's it, the, uh, what is that, the, the must-had one, the ripper? Um, uh, the um, rip roller. Rip roller, <clears throat> knife jigs. I mean, there's been reports of people dropping a lead weight with a hook in the bottom of it, you know, like a big, a big oversized sinker with a hook in the bottom of it and getting bit. I don't know how true that is, but I wouldn't be surprised. So I think the most important thing is to get out there and do it. And yeah, I mean, you on some of these trips, you're not going to get a lot of sleep, but like a long range trip, time at the rail is your best, best guarantee for having a shot at getting the fish. You're not going to catch any fish laying in your bunk, but you got a shot if you're out there at the rail wetting the line. So speaking of your book, The Inside Guide to Long Range Fishing, you know, you go, honestly, it's a masterfully uh, written piece for sure. Um, so kudos to you for writing that. Um, it goes into almost every single detail into things that you would never have 
you, you almost, I mean, for us that do it, not long range, but go fishing almost every week or, or so forth, it goes into every single detail as far as, you know, booking your trip all the way to parking at the landings, all the way to the he, fish process. He even has a checklist in here for yeah. people that can't keep it straight, you know, like me. So they, <laughs> they, it's got literally every look, clothing, personal items, personal supplies, fishing tackle, spare tackle and supplies and loading and unloading supplies. So if you've never been big, big bluefin fishing, this is probably a great way to get yourself ready to go by not having to think too hard and reading a really good book with great illustrations in it. Have to get it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Where is it available? It has been available and it's been out for a couple of years now. So it was available in all the major tackle stores. They may be out of their supply right now. If they are, you can still find it on eBay under the title, the inside guide to long range fishing, or if you put in long range fishing book, you'd probably find it. So, Try your local tackle shop. We want to support them because they support us in our industry. And if they don't have a copy, then you can find it on eBay under books. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Books. And um, I can't, I can't uh, thank you enough for bringing us some copies because we definitely are going to read up on this. And uh, nothing ever hurts to have more information. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff in here that we don't know. So <laughs> mm-hmm. thank you for uh, dropping us off our copies. We'll be sure to learn a lot more and apply what we've learned. Um, out of the, the book... What do you think is your best chapter in here? What do you think is the most important chapter to someone who's never done this, long-range fishing, or even big, big tuna fishing in general? I think it, the, the most beneficial is the information on, on bait fishing for the big tuna. Okay. Yeah. Because, like we talked about in Doc Talk, we're used to on a party boat, everyone's hanging out, the boat's cruising around, they sonar some fish or visual some fish, you know, see some shiners, they pick up breezers, see foamers, slide in on them, throw chum, everyone throws in off the stern, and, and hopefully everybody gets hooked up and gets some fish. You're seeing the fish boil around, and the great majority of the activity is right there off the stern. And it's like, boom, you better be ready when they chum those fish up, and when the fish stop, it's done, and you try and do it again. Long-range fishing is a lot more of a waiting game. Most of the time, you're anchored up. You'll see fish boil here and there, but you're not chumming up a big school off the stern and everyone's staying there. Now, most of people do fish the stern, especially if there's a lot of current. You kind of have to do that unless you have a big bait that'll get out away from it. But you're going to be on a long soak, and you're going to see a picture in there of some lines going straight, if you have the book, straight back, I mean, you're feeding out a lot of line on a long soak. Lines are way out there. It's a little bit more of a waiting game. It's not all that action right there at the stern. Hmm. As I mentioned in the previous one, I said it's sometimes endless hours of boredom punctuated by moments of stark terror. <laughs> but I got to tell you, when you've got that bait out there and you're, you're in big fish country and pretty much big fish are all that's around and you feel that spool start to roll, and then it just takes off. I mean, there, there's just no feeling like it. When you put it in gear and it comes tight and lines screaming off that reel, it's, it's, it's a feeling like no other. You know? What's the size hook difference between something like you'd use for yellowfin versus bluefin? And I know the bait size selection is a big deal. Let's just put it in perspective. What's the biggest hook that you use for yellowfin? 
For yellowfin, yeah, sometimes if you have a big bait, you're using a 12-0 or 14-0 hook. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want that to happen with bluefin, man. That sounds like fun. <laughs> but, but see, if you have the flyer, you can use a hook. That's that true. Bait, right? That is true. So it's similar to what they do with the flyer, but this is a live bait. You're, you're hooking it. You're doing a, a shoulder hook on it and, and putting it in the shoulder and letting it swim A off mini and, tuna, a mini tuna yeah. specific, or and a skipjack. I mean, when your bait pulls drag on your reel, you know you got a big bait. Man, <laughs> that's so awesome. You know, Dennis, we have, I mean, there's a whole lot of options for long-range fishing. Um, you know, we'll, considering that long-fish fishing starts at seven days, and Kevin, I know the RP came back recently from a 22-day trip. What? With, yeah, 22-day. Can you believe that? That sounds like so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people are like, no, man, I can't do 22 days, but that sounds like something once in a lifetime for sure right there. Oh, yeah. Definitely want to get on that one. But anyway, um, Dennis, can you kind of give us an overview between you know what you could expect on a seven day all the way up to maybe a 22 day or even a 19 day and then also we haven't even talked about the um the fly down fly back situation on some some boats all right so right now we're gonna take kevin kind of out of this equation because we're not going to talk bluefin because that (laughs) that's the joker in the deck okay oh yeah so excluding bluefin on these trips which you are probably going to fish for them on these trips but Knowing that the bluefin's a separate subject, okay? Mm-hmm. So on, on your trips of, of seven to ten days, um, most often the biggest tuna you're going to get will be somewhere around 140 pounds, okay? A lot of times it's going to be school-sized tuna. So if you're going to stop at Guadalupe, you've got a shot at those tuna that go anywhere from 40 to 140 pounds. If those tuna are there and the sharks aren't too bad, you got a good shot at those. If you're going to Alijos Rocks, you're going to have a shot at, at, at good-sized tuna, 40-pound, 70-pound. Occasionally, they find them bigger there, and the days pass are a lot more. And uh, uh, and Wahoo at the Alijos Rocks. Then you head down to the lower banks, and that's where you get a lot more variety. You're still going to find your Wahoo. You're going to find more school-sized yellowfin for the most part. Um, so you're talking the, the 20 to 50-pound yellowfin, occasionally bigger. You're going to find Dorado. Yellowtail and good sized yellowtail down there. Grouper fishing. There's some big grouper down there, so you got to have some heavy gear to fish the grouper. Now, every once in a while, there's a cycle. Every seven, ten years, the bigger yellowfin tuna will hit those lower banks, and it's it's. I mean, it's a phenomenon when it happens. It's a couple of weeks. Um, one of the persons I worked with, we finally convinced him to go on a long range trip. His very first long range trip, he had one gold reel and one good rod, and those big fish showed up just before we left. And his very first day fishing for, for those bigger tuna, he got a super cow. Oh, <laughs> his very smoke. first trip. Now, I know another really good fisherman, however, who was, had fished for 10 years and didn't have a tuna over 250. So it, there's no guarantee you get the big fish, but as a general rule, that's what you're going to find. Um, if you start off on 11 days and more, that's where you're going to get into the uh, better chance at the cow blue or cow yellowfin tuna, and that's where you're going to need for sure the 100, 130, maybe 150 pound gear if you're fishing big bait, 200 pound if you want to fish your own kite rig. The long range trip is more focused on the uh, quality of the fish, not the quantity, um, but the fish you get are generally bigger than you get on the shorter trips. Excluding the bluefin, like we talked about. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> on the 
on the seven to 11 day trips, your gear is going to be more focused to 40 pound to 60 pound gear, something bigger. You got to have something bigger in case you end up fishing for those grouper and you might chance on some of those bigger yellow fin. The long range trip, you're going to have a bundle of the bigger rods. You're going to have a jig rod, most likely a live bait rod, a big bait rod. And for some people like me, I take my own kite rod. Nice. What's your um, typical kite rod that you're using? So now we're talking about kite rods again. I mean, that's that's bluefin and yellowfin. So, yeah. you know, what's your typical yeah. uh, kite rod? Okay. Kite rod's going to be a rail rod. And, and by the way, if, if you're going after these bigger tuna, whether it's locally or long range, if you're going to fish the big gear, you got to have a rail rod. Uh, some, some people still fish harness. You can do it, but it's, the harness is just so much more exhausting. If you're on a private boat, you're probably going to have to use the harness on a lot of them because they don't have a rail to use as a lever. If you're going on a party boat or long-range boat, rail rod is almost an absolute must for those bigger fish. It's going to make it a lot, a lot easier. What kind of model? What kind of brand? Can, can right. you give us some specifics? Right. So you asked about kite rod. My personal favorite is, is I have a Super Seeker 4X. Now, my kite rod's still all roller, which is kind of now considered ancient technology. I mean, back when I got that rod, nobody wanted ceramic guides. The ceramic guides were not consistent quality enough where people felt they could do it. So my kite rod is, a, is an accurate 50-wide, 200-pound hollow braid on a Super Seeker 4X all-roller rod. 200-pound braid, hollow yes. braid. Yes. Why 200? You want to put as much pressure as you need to on those big fish. When you're fishing a kite, you're not looking for small fish. You're looking for big fish. Right. And the kite will easily get that out there. When you're fishing the kite, line size is not an issue on getting bit. Only thing in the water is usually either a, a, a flying fish or a couple of sardines or mackerel on a double trouble or maybe a squid. You know, if I get some of those smaller Humboldt squid. So... You're dropping the bait in from above. You don't have line in the water that's going to inhibit the action of the bait or something for the fish to see. So you can get by with the big gear. It just gives you a lot of insurance. You don't have to fish the 200-pound with more drag than you do the 130. You certainly can. It will take as much drag as you can fish with, and, and you're not risking breaking something or popping something there. You've got plenty of insurance in terms of the strength of your setup. The 200-pound all the way through just puts a lot less stress on the connections and on the on the terminal tackle. It just makes life a whole lot easier when you hook a fish on that. Are you a traditional um, wind-on guy? Well, not traditional, but are you a wind-on guy, or are you doing your splices on the boat? Yes. <laughs> okay, good, good. That's, that solves that one. Uh, yes, I. Uh, we, we talked about this in Doc Talk. Yeah, I... My personal preference is for the loop-to-loop wind-ons. Um, I make my own because that way I can match the size of the spectrum to wind-on most closely, the spectrum I'm fishing, and I know every connection. The loop-to-loop connection is virtually 100%. So one of the things that most people don't realize that haven't done it before is when you hook one of these big tuna, from the moment you're hooked to the end of that battle, however it ends up, your gear is redlined or beyond redlined. I mean, it's pushed to the max, okay, for any of your, your, your normal live bait fishing stuff. If you're fishing a kite rig with 200, you got a little bit of leeway. It, it tilts a little more in your favor. 
But truly, and when you're talking these big fish, it goes from advantage fisherman to advantage fish right off the bat. The fish has got the strength, has got the size, has got the advantage. So everything has to function perfectly. If there's any weakness in the system, it's going to show up and you're going to lose a wonderful fish or perhaps a fish of a lifetime. So I use a loop-to-loop wind-on that I make myself. I go from braid to floral, no monotop shot for the big gear, and then I use a, a, a connection that I'm comfortable with down at the hook. Awesome. It's not uncomfortable with. Nothing wrong. Now, if someone wants to do a different system, a pre-made, nothing wrong with pre-made wind-ons. Nothing wrong. There's some really, really good knots that have been developed. If someone wants to tie a leader on, these work well. Um, there's been some big, big tuna that have been caught on the RP knot without a loop-to-loop. So I'm not trying to diminish that that will work. But for me, with the loop-to-loop, I know I've got 100% strength right down to my knot connection on the hook. Great. Dennis, with the gear that's available now to you to purchase in the in the tackle store, a lot of the boats, a lot of the landings, even a lot of the operations in the offices themselves of the long-range fleet, they actually offer pretty good rental gear. Is that right? Yes. The, the landings have rental gear, and some of the boats have rental gear, and a few of the boats may even have loaner gear, uh, some boat gear that they'll let you use. The... Rental gear that they have nowadays is light years beyond what it used to be. I mean, it used to be they'd get the bomb-proof, bullet-proof, day-in, day-out, take it out there, pen Jigmaster, pen 6.0, and uh, that's all we needed. But we weren't dealing with the fishing we're dealing with today. The tuna fishing that we're experiencing locally has shown why not just long-range but local fishing, you really need top-notch gear in good condition and drags that are in really good shape. Excellent, excellent. Do you think that um, someone who's never done long range fishing, do they? What What is the list of uh, things they need to purchase? Do they need to have a full, you know, uh, uh, arsenal of long range specific rods to go? No, I mean, I mean, th- theoretically, nowadays you don't need any rods. You could go to the landing and rent great quality rods with two speed reels with braided line. And you could rent all of the rods and reels you needed if you had to. The other great thing we have with the braided line nowadays, though, uh, is <clears throat> at a minimum, if you we're encountering fish, let's say, if you're going on a trip for bluefin and the fish may be 20, they may be 200, 200 plus. How do you cover that? Well, you're going to need for light live bait fishing and smaller fish, 20, 30, 40. For the sinker rig for the bigger school fish 50 60 and then for jig fishing uh big dropper loop fishing gonna need 100 120 braid gives you the option you could do that with three rigs if you had a 40 pound braid outfit braided line is so soft and so flexible you can fish 20 25 30 40 pound floral as a leader pardon me and it'll work adequately well you don't have to have a separate rod for each outfit now if you have separate rods and, and lighter braid on the smaller ones that's a bit of an advantage but a 40 pound good two speed 40 pound will fish the 20 pound fine the braid is small enough that you're not trying to cast this huge spool full of heavy mono so that can cover anything from 20 to 40 
you can have a little bit bigger reel, like a traditional 4.0 size reel, with 60-pound braid on that and fish 50 and 60. You could even cheat a little bit and put 80-pound leader on it if you had to. Then for your big rig, if you have 100 or 130, you can jig fish or fish a, a very heavy sinker rig if you had to. So braid gives you the the option of fishing a bunch of different size leaders and doing it fairly well without having to take a whole closet full of rods. Now that said, a very wise captain recently observed, if you've got other rods, if you have rods where you can bring more than that th basic three, bring them. If you got it, bring it. He said, you ain't going to catch any fish on it with it sitting in the garage. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a so, so, yeah, um, do you have to have a tackle store full of tackle to have a successful trip? No. If you're creative and flexible, you can get by with a minimum of gear. You can rent gear at a reasonable rate for what it is. It's certainly the cost of two-speed reels and the, and the high-quality rods nowadays. It gets pretty expensive. Um, but, yeah, there's a way to do it that should be affordable to most anybody whether it's owning a minimum number or just renting the minimum ones you need and bringing some different sizes a leader. I think that's really um, helpful advice because a lot of people get intimidated um, seeing the prices of some of this you know, gear. And there's, we live for this stuff. So I'm sure that Chris and I and you, we probably have a lot of savings in these <laughs> rods and reels. Um, could buy a house. Probably could, yeah. Um, so especially some of those you know, 30, 30 wide and the 20s and the rail rods you're getting with all this stuff. And um, it is a very, uh, they, they are pricey, but they're also beautiful. They're pieces of art, each and every one of them. Um, but I do think that you're right. A lot of the, most of these, if not all the, the boats and landings have access to amazing rental gear. Um, no one should be intimidated to go on one of these trips, especially uh, we keep saying it over and over again as an industry. Who knows when this one might just disappear? Yes. Who knows yes. when you'll, you'll be like, oh, I wish I did it. You might be there and you would have said all this all along and you should have just gone, you know? Yeah. Um, that's, I think. In 26, no, 2018, I really got serious about that because I was like, you know what? I'm, I, at that time, I was under 30, so that dates me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I'll ever see this again, and I don't want to be that guy that was sitting you know, back there going, I wish I caught 150-pound-plus bluefin tuna when I had the chance. So, yeah. Boy, Kevin, you hit it right on the head. Uh in my lifetime, which is more years than I care to think about now, <laughs> we have never, never seen the quantity of fish that we're seeing with these bluefin offshore. We haven't seen the size range and the size of fish we're seeing now. And we haven't seen the length of the season. I mean, it used to be, yeah, uh, okay, uh, late June, if you're lucky, July was albacore, and then September, October, a couple of yellowfin, and that was it. This fishery usually goes somewhere from April all the way through December into early January. <laughs> yeah, right. It's unbelievable. So it, it, people, a lot of people don't understand that this is something very, very special. And there are no guarantees. Hopefully this, with, the, with the regulations that are in place right now, this fishery just continues. But these are fish, and nobody knows exactly what they're thinking, what they're doing. Hopefully right. it's year after year, but we got to take advantage of it while it's here, and that's right now. Right. Yeah. And we've had some really good news recently. Um, Chris, why don't you take it away and tell everyone the great news we just had about the CARB initiatives, or the CARB board, what they've said, 
Um, you know, everyone, if you haven't been involved, uh, there was a real threat of sport fishing and sport fishing vessels being at risk of having in, insurmountable amount of cost to put new tier four engine uh, diesels inside of their vessels. And wow, uh, if that would have happened, who knows? But Chris, give us the good news. You're right, Kevin. We were under uh, very, I mean, the sport boats were very much under um, uh, under a big threat by the CARB, the California Air Resources Board, their pending regulations. Just this past week, or last week, um, it was announced that uh, there were some proposed amendments by the CARB board. And I just want to read so I don't mess anything up, but uh, key components of the amended rules. First one, vessel owners that haven't upgraded to Tier 3 engines already will be required to do so by January 1st, 2025. I would say, I think, to my knowledge, half the fleet is already at Tier 3. So that's nothing really new. That's great news. And Tier 3 is available and readily available and um, and safe. The second one is the lower emission Tier 4 engines with the diesel particulate filters. I'm not a mechanic, so bear with me. Are required by 2035, so Tier 4 engines by 2035. Um, giving us 12 years to comply as opposed to the proposed requirement, which would have had that in place by January 1st of next year in 2023. So that's really good news. And then lastly, the last parameter, if the mandated technology does not become available or proved safe by 2027, CARB will work with vessel owners to consider alternative technologies and compliance timelines. Overall, good news. We're not that the fleet does not have to close up shop or have to close down at all. I think, you know, one thing that I like to stress is we were never against going towards a tier four engine or cleaner burning engines. We were just really under the threat of the, um, I guess, inappropriate timeline to get that done. That was really the big concern. And, um, you know, very, very much kudos to SAC. They really led the way on that. Um, SAC really kind of took the steering wheel and, uh, you know, they saved their boats and rightfully so. And, you know, any of the support that, uh, that CCA could have provided, I know, uh, our executive director, Wayne, he was, um, involved and in working with SAC as well, along with other state board members, Donna Kalish from Dana Wharf Sport Fishing. She was heavily involved. Uh, Jamie Diamond up in, uh, up in Santa Barbara with the Stardust. She was heavily involved. So overall, good news. We still and, have support boats. And there was more than 20,000 petitions signed to yes. be able to save sport fishing. Um, I wrote one. Um, I actually probably, I don't know, I, <laughs> I wrote my, I was pretty. What, wrote one for every alias that you have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I wrote my mind, you know, it was spoke my mind. I'm sure quite a few other people did, but I hope the voice, it sounds like the voices were heard this time, which was great. A great win for sport fishing in California. Yeah. And with the, you know, I know a handful of captains and deckhands throughout the fleet and all that. And, you know, they all texted me back and forth between the whole deal. And once the news broke, they were certainly relieved. They were very much relieved. I know one guy in particular that was, you know, who was super worried about it, didn't even know he's still young, relatively young, so he could have gotten out, but chose to stick with it. He was super relieved that uh, he didn't, you know, blow his, his whole career and or his life savings on a boat or whatnot. So really good news. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it and it's going to affect you, Creaky Tiki. Oh, yeah. You're going to be able to still be fishing for bluefin. Maybe one day, maybe one day, mm-hmm. we'll even have a long-range boat that I'll go on. So now I can go on one of these, any one of these boats <laughs> that's going to be around yeah. for another at least 12 years. So we're going to mm-hmm. be a good, in good shape. Yeah. So um, probably uh, even longer uh, now. Yeah, yeah. not to belabor the point, but if someone isn't familiar with this, the proposed regulations put an impossible requirement on the sport fishing boats and work boats out of the harbors. It was literally impossible to meet. And if there was technology that became available, was a serious safety and reliability issue. And those are still issues for that Tier 4 level. So it just wasn't that it didn't exist. Um, mm-hmm. It exists in, in bigger motors and, and uh, on 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 onshore uses, but it's a serious reliability and safety issue on a boat. So, yeah, it, it would have literally caused uh, the end. The, the, the CARB's answer to it was, well, you have to build a new boat. Well, the technology wasn't there, and a new boat's $3 million. They said, you just pass the cost on to your passengers. <laughs> there, that was their response. Yeah. Thank goodness more uh, level-headed thinking has prevailed. It's still going to be a challenge, but it's a pathway that appears to be doable and and seems to be one that we can stay on and still fish in the meantime. So thank goodness. Thank Absolutely. you. Thank you, Zach. And thanks to every angler that wrote one of those letters, like probably everyone in here did, right. to make their voice heard. Yeah. Well, speaking of the boats pivoting right along, um, you know, the, the long-range fleet, they come in all different sizes. Usually, I think the smallest one is probably like on the 65 to 70-foot range. Um, all the way up to, I think the XL is the biggest. It was like 120. 120, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously pretty big range in that. Is there, you know, anything or any merit to the size of the boat in terms of long range, or is it really just more, um, comfort, comfortability or differences or anything like that? Boy, there are, I, I don't think when these boats were built with the exception of a couple of recent ones, uh, people really had a full feel for what long-range fishing would encompass. No one built those boats saying, I'm going to go to Clipperton Island someday, mm-hmm. you know, but they did. So, yeah, there's a difference in size. Uh, sometimes that's a difference in the number of passengers they carry, but it's also a difference in storage area. I mean, you have to take to be assured of having what you're going to need on these trips. Like I said, there's no tackle store out there. There's no hardware store out there. The boats carry a, a, a supply of tackle as they can, spare tackle as they can. There's so many things out there you may need, you end up taking a ton of gear. So storage is it, a different challenge on each boat. Even some of the bigger boats have great storage here, but not so much there. Uh, one of my favorite boats, it, it's, its storage is modest, but the boat and the crew and the way they fish, we all really enjoy it. It's a charter group I've been with forever. So you learn to make it work. But, yeah, uh, each boat has its own operation, its own way of doing things, even down to loading and unloading. Each boat has its own process for loading and getting stuff stored and getting you on. It's good to know as much as you can ahead of time on how they're going to manage the loading and and, uh, how does that process work. Yeah, Um, and all the different, I call them logistics. So the loading and unloading, it's a process because, I mean, you're right. You take a whole bunch of gear and all that. One of those logistics too are typically on the on the long range boat. You have staterooms as well. Um, how how important is it? And how walk us through that whole process in terms of picking your stateroom or picking your bucknamate and all that. It's kind of different, isn't it? 
it varies from boat to boat. Mm -hmm. If you're a repeat customer and you have a favorite stateroom, uh, it, and sometimes the boat will just assign you that one automatically. Some do it in order of when uh, reservations are received. Some do it in order of when the fare is paid off. Uh, some let the charter master assign them. It, it just depends on the boat. And, and yeah, the staterooms are all different. Some of them, uh, they, they're not all cookie cutter the same. Some have more storage in a smaller bunk. Some have bigger bumps. Um, as we get older, a lot of us have our physical challenges. So if someone has a little bit limited mobility but can still fish plenty well, you know, knees aren't what they used to be, back isn't what it used to be, well, then so, a lot of times you can find a stateroom with a bigger bunk, you know, where you don't have to climb up on the top. Make sure you get a bottom bunk. It's a wider bunk that's a little more comfortable for you. I've seen the boats make... Uh, uh, within reason accommodations. Some people have to bring a, a, a little bit of a, a breathing supplement like a CPAP or APAP. Not all staterooms have electrical outlets. So if you have a little bit of limited mobility but can still fish, if you have any special needs, best to let the landing know that right away because they will accommodate that as much as they can. You know, If not, you know, talk to your charter master. If you're on a charter, find out how staterooms are assigned. If, tell them if you have any special needs. If it's uh, an open party, yeah, then a landing's going to sign, and you can make a request, and depending on their system, you know, hopefully you'll get your request if you can. Um, as far as a novice, uh, long-range <coughs> long or um, more, uh, let's say more than a day and a half, how does someone even start to think about a boat that they want to go with? There's so many options out there. We have a lot of different landings with all sorts of great boats. Where does someone start? How do they just get on a boat? Okay, Kevin, if we're talking today, <laughs> where you're going to have to start is go online and see if there's even a spot available. There you go. <laughs> uh, I yeah. mean, literally, you know, the people have gotten so dialed in to the bluefin fishing that even with the long season and all the boats going out more days than they traditionally have, the books, the trips are filling up so fast. You go to a lot of the boats and go down the list, I mean, especially the long-range boats that have some shorter trips, book, 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 waiting list only if you're lucky. Um, so I say uh, the main thing is is find the length of trip you want to go on in a time period, go on a different boat websites or talk to landings and see what's available. So much has already been reserved. It's, it's mind-boggling, you know. So it's, it's a challenge. Get your gear ready now. Get your gear purchased now because it might not be available when you want to go. Find the time you want to go and see what's available and then pick if there's a certain boat you know or a boat you like, get on it. Charters are also not another bad way to go. Um, if you know someone that runs charter trips, hopefully you may be able to get on with them because they've got the whole book, whole boat book for that time period. Mm -hmm. the, the only little disadvantage to charters is is you can't pick the time period. You can't say, oh, man, the bite's really coming on, and I've got some time off coming. I'm going to go now. You have to go, you know, you have to pick that date way ahead of time and go on that date and take your chances. Right. But you also end up with a group, you know, that oftentimes you know pretty much everyone in the group. It's true. I'm looking at the schedule for the Royal Polaris. The next available trip with 28 spots left is December 31st of this yeah. year. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, uh, oh yeah, and Almost it was probably booked in December. Yeah. yeah, that was probably all booked in December already. So. Now I, I, I will say 
um, especially now that this economy is, wow. is, is getting very questionable, most of the boats maintain a waiting list. So even if a trip is full, if there's one you really want to go on, call a landing, get on the waiting list. There's been a whole lot of reasons, you know, whether it's been illness, COVID, work, whatever, unexpected life events. Oftentimes, people from a waiting list get on the trip. It's, it's not a guarantee, but you usually have pretty good luck nowadays on a waiting list getting on a trip if you're not too far down the list. That's a really good point. Really good idea. Um, there's probably a lot of people waiting at the dock, and they're going to be waiting longer if they don't get on it. So yeah. get on the waiting list. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then and the landing will notify you prior to the trip. You right. Know? Yeah. Dennis, what is better in your eyes? What's better? Is there, um, obviously there's a difference between say a 10 day and say there's a, a fly down, fly back opportunity. Is it better to stick with the boat and have those days to prep your gear and just to kind of get, um, get to, get to know your charter group and all that? Or is there, you know, if there's an opportunity for a fly down, fly back, you should just jump on that one instead. Again, we can say yes, uh, yes, and, and, and sometimes, <laughs> yeah. Um, when you're talking about fly down, fly back, one, one of the things that you need to keep in mind is is when you're going on one of the, the uh, seven to 10-day trips or the 11-day and longer trips, there is a lot of travel time. And there have been some very disappointing anglers, disappointed anglers who didn't do their homework and thought, I'm going on an eight-day trip, and I'm going to have eight days of fishing. Well, no, <laughs> on an eight-day trip, you're going to have about three to four, maybe four and a half days of fishing because you've got a lot of travel time. The longer trips are looking more for the quality, not the quantity. They're going to go where you have a chance, you know, at getting some real quality fish and without all the other boats around. But to do that, you've got to go a ways, you know, so there is travel time. You mentioned about getting gear prep. The most important time on the boat is generally the trip down which can be anywhere from a day and a half up to, if you're going to Hurricane Bank, four days, four days plus. That trip down is your chance to not only get your gear rigged, but the captain's getting all the latest information, okay? They're talking to the other boats that are down there. The boat's coming back. They have their code groups that they talk to. So they may modify. I mean, they're going to leave with a plan and tell you the general plan, but they're going to refine that plan as information comes in and they get closer to destination, Water, temp, chlorophyll, you know, current, everything, you know, fishing pressure, all those could modify it. So I think there's a real advantage to being on the boat on the way down because you're going to get there and be ready with the right stuff. If you do a fly down and meet the boat, you, you save that travel time, but you're going to fly to Cabo San Lucas and get on a skiff and go out and meet the boat. Then you're going to have less time to get rigged up. Um, you can still do it, but um, you, you're not going to have the advantage of all that time to make your leaders, if you're making Wahoo leaders, making Wyandong leaders, crimping your leaders. Um, you're not going to have quite as much time to do that. <clears throat> the fly home is not as big a deal because what happens towards the end of the trip, they're going to drop you off in Cabo. You fly home. The trip uphill is either wonderfully calm or victory at sea. <laughs> okay. um, it, it's what they call going uphill. You're going downhill on the way down. You're going generally with that northwest swell, and it's pushing you down when you're going down the coast and down the lower banks or down to those uh, the, the remote banks. But on the way home, you're going into it, and sometimes it can be a bit uncomfortable. So there are people that choose to fly home. You have a, a day or two 
at home, and then you go back down and meet the boat, get your gear, unload your fish, and do all that. Most people do that when they want to go on a longer trip and just can't afford to be away from work or work in the family for that length of time. You know, it gives them that extra two or three days. You know, uh, you, you get more fishing time and the same amount of time off work by flying home. You know, but then you do have to range go back down and meet the boat at the dock. What's your favorite trip length? Your personal favorite? <sighs> you had to pick yes. one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> my favorite trip length. I, I, I tell you, um, my favorite trip length is, is 13 to 16 days. Uh, and I'll tell you why. I mean, even though the buffer zone at Clarion has been pushed out, to go down and see Clarion Island, I, the, the closest I could relate it to, it's like a real live Jurassic Park. The only thing on that whole island is a small little uh, uh, satellite Navy base for the Mexican Navy. And the rest of that island is untouched. I, I mean, I look at that island, imagine there's so many places that no human being has ever been. And there's these beautiful pinnacles and arches that just look prehistoric around the island. And the islands, even way down there with the tropic rain, is green. And it's just, it's just such an untouched area. And the other thing you see down there is the competition. I mean, if you read in a book, you'll see you're down there. There's birds down there like we don't see. There's frigate birds, booby birds, seagulls, uh, any, any kind of seabird you can imagine. You Remember we talked about finding the hot bait? You finally found that perfect bait. You got it hooked, and the fish are there. And as soon as you cast it, one of those frigate birds picks it out of the air. Oh, off your wow. Hook, or it hits the water, and they dive down and get it. You know, If you, you sneak over and set it in the water, they dive down and get it. It's, and it, it, it is just such a, a, a true natural environment. It's survival of the fittest. I, pound for pound, it seems like, to me, the fish fight harder. They're a little bit leaner. I mean, if you, if you look at... Uh, the fish on the cover there, you can see it's long and lean. Mm -hmm, you look mm -hmm. at some of the other fish that come from the lower banks, they tend to be a lot chubbier around the middle. They're tough fish. They're survivors. It, and it like I said, it's just such a natural, almost untouched environment. It's wonderful to see. All right. Wonderful experience. Have you ever been to Clipperton? I have not been to Clipperton. No, not on, not on a fishing boat. Is that on your bucket list? Do you think you're going to go uh, there? Not at this point. Um, I'm, st I'm still uh, on the Seeker Rods Pro staff and running some trips for them, plus doing my own trips and charters I've always done. So especially with this bluefin fishery the way it is right now, <laughs> right. it's hard to justify the cost of and, and the 20-some days, 25 days to go to Clipperton. and Those back, damn bluefin. You know? Yeah. Yeah. When we've got that kind of fishing right here. I mean, They're I listening to you, question. Chris. You better not yeah. curse them, oh, man. I'm sorry. I'm you sorry, watch. <laughs> you tell them they're yeah. sorry. No. <laughs> this is just such an unbelievable opportunity. You know, it's, it's, it's just take full advantage of that and still try to do some of the other trips, too. Yeah, that's, that's such a good point. There's, there's such unreal fishing right now. How can you say no to it while it's here? So yeah. um, we're looking forward to a really good season. I think that a lot of people that are listening to this are going to learn a lot from the, your experience, and definitely by reading your book, I think they're going to be able to understand a lot more. Um, where, where else can we find you? Where else can they find out more information about you? Oh, gosh, I, I think my parole officer is retired. So. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Then we can let it out yeah. there. Uh, I don't know if there's any more information. And, and listen, I, I, I thank you for, for all your comments up front. I've... 
Oh, I mean, every long-range trip I went on, I came back with pages of notes of things I learned from other fishermen, observed, learned from the crew especially. You know, there's just such a wealth of knowledge out there. There's long-range fishermen that are way more expert than I am. I just tried to take advantage of everything I'd experienced over some decades of doing it, put it in a little guidebook for people that gives them a good basis of information, good foundation of information. But... Uh, there's people out there that know plenty, so I, I'm not sure there's there's much more to know from me. Um, well, how does someone get on a trip with you? If you if you um, look at the boat schedules, if it's a seeker sponsored trip, if like like for instance, uh, uh, one of the boats that uses quite a bit are the Legend and the Excalibur. If you look on their website, then it will say sponsored by Seeker Rods. So there's there's Four of us that do those trips. Um, one of the factory reps will be on those trips. So different boats. I mean, we, we, we've been on Tomahawk. We've been on, on a lot of the boats down there. Look at the boat schedule, especially like middle of summer, uh, early fall, summer, early fall, and you'll see if it's a seeker-sponsored trip. Um, that's, that's trips that I'll be on most of those. Awesome. Great. That's, I'm looking forward to maybe hopping on one of those with you. Okay, That'd we'll, be awesome. We'll, we'll keep in touch and see if we can make that happen. All right. For sure. One more thing, Dennis. Creaky Tiki. How did you get that <laughs> oh, name? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Before we get to Creaky Tiki, one thing can I, can sure, I throw in? Sure, absolutely. Okay. Um, we talked, I, I want to go back to Kevin here in the bluefin fishing, and I just can't emphasize enough, if you're fishing for bluefin, whether it's private boat or party boat, change your bait. I mean, get a lively bait, get it in there. Some captains swear that no more than a minute you change that mm -hmm, bait. Some mm -hmm. of them say two, three. But you can get bit on a long soak with a bluefin, but very, very rarely compared to other fish. You've got to have bluefin want a naturally swimming bait. The longer that bait's swimming with the hook in it and the line on it, the quicker it's getting, you know, it's getting tired and it's just not looking as natural. So if you're bluefin fishing, hot bait, change it. Change it, change it. You'll hear the captains on the speaker. If you're not getting bit, you might want to think about changing that bait. And it's really hard when you see the fish out there and you've got a bait out there and think, oh, but I'm right out there and I just got out there. Change the bait, change the bait, change the bait. It'll really help improve your chances of getting hooked up. Okay. Now we get back to, to Creaky Tiki, if that's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How did you get the name Creaky Tiki? Uh, when I was approaching my 60th birthday a while back, uh, <laughs> Wife and I were having a friendly discussion, but we had a whole different viewpoint. She had pictured this giant blowout. He's going to be 60. We're all going to celebrate. This is a big deal. And I said, no, I don't want a big blowout. I just want a little nice gathering. So we went back and forth, back and forth. And um, we had friends in the South Pacific, and I'd been to the South Pacific in my school ship when I went to Maritime Academy. So I had a real fondness for tiki's. Um, you know, I have my little, always wear my little oh, yeah. tiki pendant. And uh, I said, look, I know I'm getting old and creaky. I'm going to be an old creaky tiki, but I don't want a big blowout. So we finally agreed. I said, okay, okay, we can have a creaky tiki party, family and a few friends, some tiki punch, some tiki decorations. We did, and, and everyone had such a good time. It, it just stuck. All so. right. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I think you're still probably a fresh and ready tiki at this point. You're still going out there and fishing with the big fish, and I think that's a lot of people, they wish they could be in your shoes doing what you do, so... Um, I have to change your name. Maybe it should be like Fishy Tiki. Fishy Tiki. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for your time today. We really appreciate it. You've given all the listeners so much information. 
Um, I know that there's just so many people jonesing to get out there to catch their first cow if they've never caught one, even one over 100 pounds. So um, now is the time. The season is here. You've got to get out there. You've got to just pick a boat whenever you can. Um, and I think that with some of the knowledge you've learned today, especially live bait fishing, if you can pick the fresh hot bait, you've got your best odds for you. So um, thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, Chris, take it away. Awesome. Dennis, thank you so much, man. I really, really appreciate you being here for sure. Well, thank you guys for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here, and, and, and I hope the information is useful. Yeah, if you get out in the boat and you have any questions, don't be proud. Ask the crew. They're out there every day. They, they know almost everything there is to know, and they're going to set you straight and give you your best shot at having a great trip. Well said. Well said. Thank you so much. Guys, that is it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We are super excited to have you as a listener, as a subscriber. Make sure you do subscribe on to the podcast on any wherever you get your podcast. Also, make sure to check out our website at ccacalifornia.org and make sure to follow us on Instagram at ccacalifornia. My name is Chris. Kevin, good to see you, man. All right. I'll see you next week, I guess. Yep. We'll see you guys next week. Take care, everyone. <laughs>